I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. I'll admit that I'm a little jaded when it comes to holidays and gifts. I've always viewed the holidays as primarily a time to connect and spend time with loved ones and reflect on everything I'm grateful for and appreciative of. But it seems to me that, at least in rich industrialized countries like the U.S., the holiday season has transformed into an orgy of consumerism, and this can make it difficult to stay connected to the true spirit of the holidays. One way I've addressed this in my life is to focus on giving gifts that I feel will truly make a difference in the recipient's life. I try to choose gifts that uplift, inspire, empower, educate, and generally help people to feel and perform their best. With that in mind, I'm excited to share our first annual holiday gift guide. I've curated a selection of my favorite products from trusted partners. These are the products and services that have made a big impact on my own life and my patients' lives. I can recommend them with confidence because I've experienced their benefits firsthand. I've personally approved every gift in the guide. They've made it through my rigorous selection criteria, which include quality, efficacy, purity, brand values, and supporting research. These are the gifts that keep giving over and over. I hope you enjoy giving them as much as I've enjoyed sharing them with you in the guide. Just go to cresser.co slash gift to check it out. That's cresser.co slash G-I-F-T. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. Six in 10 Americans suffer from a chronic disease and four in 10 Americans suffer from multiple chronic diseases, and these numbers are fairly similar in other industrialized countries around the world, but they don't reflect the growing percentage of Americans who suffer from complex chronic illness. These are conditions like Lyme disease, autoimmunity, chronic inflammatory response syndrome or mold illness, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, long COVID more recently, and so many others. So I wanted to invite Dr. Sanja Schwag on the show to discuss this topic with me. As you may know, I co-founded California Center for Functional Medicine with Dr. Schwag back in 2014, and we ran that clinic together for many years until I left uh, to pursue other opportunities a couple of years ago, and Dr. Schwag has continued to run and grow CCFM. It's one of the largest functional medicine clinics on the West Coast, and he has a wealth of experience in treating complex chronic illness, um, in particular Lyme disease. It's an area that he specialized in for many years. As you'll learn on the show, his wife suffered from Lyme disease, was diagnosed with it uh, shortly after 
Sanja uh, finished his residency in Santa Rosa. And so he has specialized in treating patients with Lyme for many years. And, and that's a, a prime example of a complex chronic illness that is not well served by the traditional medical system. So we talk about the shortcomings of the conventional approach to these kinds of conditions, uh, why so many people who suffer from them feel invisible, uh, both in terms of, you know, just, just these conditions are often under the surface and not visible to people in the outside world. And also the lab results often don't reflect what's really going on under the surface. And that can be incredibly frustrating and challenging for people that are dealing with them. Uh, we talk about how the functional medicine model differs when it comes to looking at these conditions from a more systems-based, uh, interconnected perspective. The innovations that Dr. Schwag and his team are making at CCFM on ev everywhere from a collaborative practice model to being able to, first of all, collect meaningful data using wearables and other trackers and then visualizing that data for actionable insights some of the things that his nonprofit uh, that's dedicated to exploring all of these topics is working on. And just a, you know, really, for me, fascinating discussion on how we can improve patient care uh, for people that are suffering with these kinds of problems, which is a lot of people now, as, it's, as the statistics I shared at the beginning uh, of this show suggested. So, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Let's dive in. Dr. Sanja Schwag, pleasure to have you on the show and to connect with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Great to speak with you again. So I'm excited to talk about complex chronic illness. That's not something most people are excited to talk about, but you and I <laughs> like to talk about this because it's a big problem. And even in the course of my career, I've seen an uptick in the number of people that show up in the clinic with not just chronic illness, which we know is very prevalent. Six in 10 Americans have a chronic disease, four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. But the number of people showing up with very complex, sometimes mysterious and difficult to treat chronic illnesses seems at least anecdotally and empirically to me to be on the rise. And I, I think that's been your experience as well. I definitely agree with that. We're seeing bigger numbers of people. We're seeing broader swaths of different populations. Um, we're seeing more intensity and, and level of chronic illness, right? You know, the complexity seems to build. And, you know, our practice does see a lot of folks with complex chronic illness, but it does seem like, yeah, that load is just becoming more and more of a burden on the individual, on homes, communities, uh, society. Um, there was an amazing quote, I don't know if you know, the, the book by Megan O'Rourke, The Invisible Kingdom, um, you know, but she, she said, um, just framing it, you know, to become chronically ill is not only to have a disease that you have to manage, but to have a new story about yourself, a story that many people refuse to hear because it's deeply unsatisfying, full of fits and starts, anger, resentment, chasms of unruly need, right? And so there's that juxtaposition of these people suffering, but then there's such, uh, um, you know, our, our society, not just in the medical system, but you know, huge problems there with how it meets people, but just our society at large uh, is not really set up for this. It's not really set up for hardship and grief and complexity and struggle. And, you know, we have a very sort of, uh, you know, achievement win, you know, be the smartest, be the best, um, be the richest, you know, as, you know, win the Super Bowl, win the, you know, the World Series. Now it's a very like achievement oriented society. And so the place for these people and, and, um, and as they try to navigate through a variety of societal systems, um, it's, it's super hard, super, super difficult um, on so many fronts. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you, you know, you mentioned something that I think is a one of the most challenging aspects of it for people who are struggling with chronic illness, which I have myself for, you know, uh, that's what brought me to functional medicine, as, as you know, and as many of the listeners know, is the invisibility of it. Yeah. You know, if, if you have a, an injury, you broke your leg, you're in a cast, everyone pretty much knows what's going on there and that your, your mobility is going to be a bit limited and they interact with you accordingly. And 
um, there are even other, you know, chronic illnesses and chronic diseases which have a more visible element or, uh, or acute diseases. But with, with some of these chronic illnesses, they are invisible to most people, you know, except maybe people who are the closest to those folks who are suffering from them. And I would say that invisibility exists in two ways. One, just from a visual standpoint, just being able to look at someone and not knowing that they could be really, really suffering, not, not just a little bit, like, you know, barely getting by, basically, yeah. Um, yeah. that debilitated. But but on the surface, just if they're out at the grocery store or, or interacting with people at a party, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know that. And there's a unique impact that that has, I think, uh, on people. And then the second quality of invisibility is, is in the lab work where they might go to their conventional physician and get just the basic markers that you get in a physical blood sugar, metabolic function, you know, cholesterol panel, et cetera. All of those are going to be normal. The doctor then says, everything's fine. I, you know, I'm not sure what's wrong with you. Maybe here's an SSRI or, and that could be really disempowering and discouraging too because they just feel completely unseen by people around them and completely unseen by the medical establishment that they're interacting with yeah disempowering um you know disheartening um i would even go so far as to say traumatic yeah you know it's um these people are somewhere in the spectrum of you know previously knew a quote normal life where I could wake up in the morning and I kind of knew what my body was going to be doing. You know, maybe I was either having a great day or uh, maybe I partied the night before, or maybe I traveled and I'm a little jet lag and I feel a little tired and, you know, my brain's not working great, but you know, Hey, tomorrow I'll be back in action. You know, so many people with these complex chronic illnesses wake up in the morning and they literally have no idea what to expect. And they might, you know, try to get some things done and try to achieve parts of their function. And then they get basically slapped down and, and they don't know where that line is of where they can't cross before they have a flare, you know, this sort of push, push crash phenomenon. And yeah, your point of then, you know, they, they do their best. They go and they seek medical care and they go to their primary doctors. They go to their internists, they go to their specialists and the higher up the ladder they go in academia, seeking out these smarter and smarter, you know, more expert people, unfortunately, the experience becomes more and more difficult and more problematic. And, you know, the doctors, you know, they, many doctors, I think, are wonderful people, and they're doing their best to help uh, so many people during their days, right? But the factors which you go into so much in your work are so many, right? Time, resources, tests that just aren't testing the right thing, or, you know, have the wrong uh, interpretive range on them that, you know, people maybe, you know, are captured in the quote, normal range and it said, okay, nothing's wrong with your test. But then we look at those tests, we, what we say, well, actually, you know, if that's not normal, right, you know, there's a, there's a functional range that we might use and, um, and you're not in that normal range. And if we get all these different pieces of the puzzle lined up into those ranges, then maybe things start to play along as a symphony should, should be, you know, and so, but yeah, the trauma of that experience and the trauma of people um, seeking their, the care, going, going to these doctors, um, and, and hoping, 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 and, and just getting let down and getting, not getting answers and not getting better. And, um, you know, I know this is something which you know personally, and, and I know personally, you know, I, um, I, I have some personal chronic health issues, but I've also seen my wife go through Lyme disease. And for a decade, we had no idea what it was. And we were going to all the specialists. And so we've, we've both lived this reality. And, you know, I think that's part of what makes us um, so passionate about what we're doing is that we know what's at stake and we know how important this is, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had the same experience. You know, a, an example that comes to mind is I would often refer patients with iron overload to hematologists and, you know, they'd have a ferritin of 600, which is out of the lab range even, you know, we're not talking about functional ranges, you know, clearly out of the lab range and their iron saturation would be 75%, which is well out of the lab range. And these folks would go to the hematologist and the hematologist would dismiss them, you know, and say, Hey, you know, I, I, there's nothing really to, to do here. There's nothing wrong. And I think, you know, I, I've had a lot of time to reflect on that. I think part of the issue is 
most of the time, those specialists are seeing people at a much later stage in the disease process. They're seeing right. people with cancer. They're seeing people with severe blood disorders. They're seeing people with ferritin levels at 1500 who need emergency phlebotomy, you know, as treatment. And when you, when that's your day-to-day -day experience as a clinician and somebody comes into you, who's just like at an earlier point on that spectrum, it doesn't land in the same way. And I'm not excusing it because I think that they should still, you know, pay, be paying attention to that. But I just been trying, you know, in an effort to make sense of how a, a hematologist could send somebody away with a ferritin level, uh, you know, in the 600s and iron saturation of 75%. That's the only only way I that 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 makes any sense to me is that just that that person just doesn't really get onto the radar because they have so many other much more severe and urgent cases that they need to deal with. But of course, this highlights one of the biggest issues in the conventional system is that it's primarily disease management, and it's yeah. like wait until the problem becomes so severe that by that time it's almost too late to intervene, or at least it's going to be yeah. much more difficult to reverse. And, yeah. you know, this is one of the issues we've been, at, we're addressing together. And, and now you continue to at California Center for Functional Medicine, where, you know, the question is like, how do you, where do you even start? You know, how do you make sense of these kinds of pathologies and patterns that are so poorly recognized they're not even recognized in, in many cases until years later. I know you've fought for so hard, so hard for so long on the Lyme disease front as an example. And this yep. is some, something that you have personal experience with. It's something that you have ton of clinical experience with. It's something you've seen a shift in from the early days where chronic Lyme wasn't even allowed to be discussed in any yep. kind of conventional medical context. Yeah. So maybe we could use that as a kind of microcosm, macrocosm um, for, you know, highlighting some of these issues. Because, I, I it, you know, clearly there are people who are listening to this, no matter what, who either have been affected by chronic Lyme, are affected, or will be affected. Yeah, you're right. So, so Lyme disease has been a big area of focus for me um, across my career. And um, my wife uh, was diagnosed with Lyme disease uh, the year I finished my medical training um, at the UCSF Santa Rosa Family Practice Residency Program. I had just entered my, you know, chosen career of private practice in functional medicine, kind of thinking that, you know, this is going to, you know, it's going to be helping keep people off of drugs and keeping them healthy and working on all the lifestyle pieces and optimization. And, and, um, and immediately went down this rabbit hole of um, just really unbelievably complex, severe illness um, for which not only is that like problem A, but then problem B is that there's this basically a war going on in the medical field about what is or isn't happening with this, with this condition. And so then I was, you know, suddenly against this, um, you know, I have a huge respect for science and I have a huge respect for my mentors and the specialists who I'm trained to rely on. And all of a sudden, um, what I was doing was at odds with what they were saying and, the, and the, the complexity and the fear and the uncertainty and just like the wish that, gosh, like I know what I'm doing is, is real and these people need help. Uh, and at the same time, like I have no backup, you know, like, like I, you know, I'm, on, I'm out on a limb here. And fortunately, that's changed, but it's absolutely not over. Like, you know, organizations like the Bay Area Lyme Foundation, who I serve on the scientific advisory board with, and I have um, received some generous funding from them. We've managed to do some really fun research in collaboration with Johns Hopkins, looking at botanical medicines for, for a variety of tick-borne diseases and showing efficacy in a test tube lab model. You know, but you know the CDC is now sort of has, has over the years ratcheted up there. It used to be okay. We think there's 30,000 cases of Lyme, and then they said actually it's probably 10x that. It's probably in the 300,000 range. This last year, they said oh actually it looks like there's about 495,000 new cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. alone. We still think that's an underestimate, but at least we're starting to approach some more realistic numbers. And we know that out of the research of John Hopkins, um, uh, Dr. Akat. Um, you know, anywhere, if, assuming somebody gets Lyme and they get decent treatment, you know, which standard treatment, ideally two to three weeks of antibiotics is the sort of IDSA CDC recommendation. If they get that treatment, 
anywhere from 15 to 35% of those people will still then go on to have chronic illness and ongoing symptoms that did not resolve. And, uh, you know, the mainstream thinking is, okay, that's some kind of a, what they call post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. You know, maybe it's inflammatory, maybe it's autoimmune, et cetera. We know pretty conclusively that the, uh, the, the bug persists. And that's been shown with amazing research in the primate model with Dr. Embers, Monica Embers out at Tulane. Um, you know, so the science is stacking and, and there's no longer really a question of, of what is or isn't happening. It's, it's just that we're left with this, uh, still this tidal wave of, of kind of ego and sort of infighting around how do we move forward here. But there's people getting better help. The diagnostic tests still are, are completely lacking. We still can't really test and say, yes, someone does or doesn't have it definitively. But the, the, the load then of what this sets people up for with chronic illness is incredible. We see that in autoimmune. You talk about this a lot, right? A huge uptick in our society with autoimmune illnesses for so many different reasons, right? Evolutionary mismatch, hidden infections is a big driver of that. We talk about Lyme and Bartonella. We're seeing that in COVID now. We're seeing that with parasites. We're seeing that with other viral infections, right? Huge, uh, one of my favorite books is this you know, $250 super thick textbook that I have on my shelf um, called Infections and Autoimmunity. And, you know, edited, uh, chief editor was Yehuda Schoenfeld, one of the global leaders on, the, on this work. But we talk about, you know, gut and microbiome imbalances, toxin exposure, inflammatory, you know, drivers of a variety of different immune system dysregulation, you know, processes going sideways. Now, we think about COVID and long COVID and, and the, gosh, I mean, just like so intense, like so really scary and disheartening what's happened over the last couple of years and how many people are still struggling with long COVID. And I think there's also a little bit of a silver lining there, you know, because here is this condition, which I think is more accepted and more understood that, oh, wow, this can actually happen. Like, we don't know why, right? There's, there's a lot of debate. There's multiple pathways that we think are involved. Um, and there's debate still on could there or could there not be persistent virus. I think there can be. That's been shown in a variety of really impressive studies in a variety of different tissue reservoirs. But certainly autoimmune, microclots, mitochondrial dysregulation, central nervous system dysregulation, gut dysregulation, I mean, all these factors that we think about in, in uh, functional medicine. And the upside to it is that um, it's bringing new people to the table. It's bringing people to the table who say, gosh, this does... I don't understand it. Person, you know, still is invisible. I can't tell from the outside of what they're what they're experiencing, but seems to be pretty real. And it's happening all over the world. And it's happening to like hundreds of millions of people, like huge, huge numbers, you know. And so there's like this a little bit of rekindling of some curiosity and some scientific, uh, you know, push, which I think, in turn, is going to transform the experience of other folks with MECFS, with Lyme disease, with autoimmune. I think we're going to get some really interesting answers out of it. So there's a little bit of a silver lining there of, of, of some movement happening on the global scale, which I'm sure you're seeing too. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's been well established within the context of other viral illnesses that they're triggers for autoimmune disease and, and a lot of other pathologies. So it was not as big of a leap perhaps for scientists, even in mainstream medical establishment to make to see that, yes, well, SARS coronavirus 2 is, you know, prevalent virus, it's affecting huge percentage of the population. So it shouldn't really actually be a surprise, given what we know about other viruses, that it's triggering ongoing symptoms, uh, particularly immunological symptoms. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that that did, that was easier, you know, easier to accept. There were fewer sort of leaps of understanding or faith that people had to take to get there. What's difficult to piece out now is the research on the on prevalence and incidence and how, how to actually do that properly. And it's, it's yes, really tricky. Agree. <laughs> I mean, agree. I, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think Lyme and autoimmunity and long COVID, all of these things highlight the themes that we were talking about earlier, which the invisibility aspect. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. with Lyme, just starting with the nature of those infections, they are known as stealth infections, right? Stealth pathogens. And they're known that way because of their ability to evade the immune system. Yeah, not even their ability, but their, um, that's like their central, like, their, that's their, their central characteristic. That's their deal, right? Like, <laughs> that's what makes them who they are, right? Yeah. You know, they can switch forms, 
right? Twitch farms, move around, and, and like it's it's incredible. Um, you know, so a lot of our tests that we're looking, almost all of our tests that were, you know, standard tests are blood tests, right? And so we're basically like pulling a sample from that one compartment and then we're running it through a machine to say, okay, yes or no, you know, ideally the question would be yes or no, is this bug there? But really the only question we can ask reliably is, has your immune system seen this bug as a yeah. problem? So it's an indirect test, right? But the Lyme bacteria is just classically known to very, very quickly get out of the blood compartment and hide out in tissues and areas of the body that are very poorly surveilled from an immune system point of view. And it just kind of acts like it's not there. And so the immune system can't figure it out. And it goes into this sort of hyper inflammatory, you know, cr chronic low grade inflammation state that doesn't show up on tests. And then the bug doesn't show up on the tests either, right? Um, and so just really a master of, of, of deception. Um, when I give talks on this, I will sometimes present this tree of life with, you know, at the upper outer leaves and branches of this 4.8 billion year evolution are primates and humans. And literally down at the very base of that tree are the ancestors of today's spirochete bacteria. So they like literally have been around forever. Like they've just completely been watching us evolve. And so their capacity to evade our immune system, hide out, you know, persist, like you said, these persistent pathogens um, is really actually pretty beautiful. Like it's pretty amazing, right? When you can kind of get past like how, how much of a crap show it is, like, you know, it's Absolutely. pretty incredible what they can do, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I've had Lyme disease myself, as you know, and yeah, I'm fascinated by it uh, and, and i don't say i say this with complete sensitivity to how devastating it can be um for yeah. people and even fatal so i'm not making making light in any in any way but i think it is actually important to have an appreciation for just how sophisticated these yeah. organisms are and just how much experience they have at evading mammalian immune systems. I mean, and yes. you know, not, not only their longevity and how long they've been on the planet, but of course, as microorganisms, they're, 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 the evolutionary life cycle is so much shorter. So they, they can adapt and learn so quickly. And it's, if you read any kind of these, these books, which, which explain the mechanisms that, that these organisms employ, it's, it's, you, you can't come away from that without like a deep respect and appreciation for what we're up against, really. Like it's, yeah. it's lucky that they need to keep us alive, you know, in order, <laughs> right. in order to propagate because right. if not, we would really have no defense um, against it or we don't have the level of defense that we need. So that it's, it strikes me as, you know, the first level that the invisibility starts here is even before we get to, labs or our cultural attitudes about it or medical attitudes about it is just the very nature of these right, it's rooted in the biology of is rooted in yep. their biology and then from there like you said for so many years if, if somebody had Lyme disease took antibiotics went back to the doctor three months later and said look I feel exhausted all the time I'm I've got sweat you know I'm breaking out in sweats and my muscles are achy I can't exercise anymore Joint pain that's moving around, yeah, numbness joint tingling moving that's moving around. around. I feel like I have the flu all the time. All the time, you but know. I never get sick. Yeah, yeah. The response Incredible. was, as you pointed out, was, well, that's not, it's not Lyme disease anymore because you, you, you had it. We treated you. That's over. Right. The CDC right. says so. All of the guidelines say so. So here's some ibuprofen. Here, here's some right. ibuprofen or, you know, whatever. And these, these people have suffered and are still suffering for, for decades, years, decades as a result of that um, misunderstanding. And also, I think a little, I mean, I'm going to say it like hubris and, you know, the, the, there's a, a lack of humility in, in these cases where we're, we're so sure that we have the answers, we're unwilling to be, get curious and say, like, if you're in that position, you keep seeing people come in. Of course, the, the better clinicians did, you know, evolve their understanding and start asking questions over time. But um, those who are perhaps just following the, you know, the CDC guidelines and sticking to it, they really, there were a lot of missed opportunities there to help people. Absolutely. Let's talk amino acids for a moment. 
On my recent episode, Why Amino Acids Are the Building Blocks of Life, I discuss why we need amino acids at all stages of life and how Keon aminos can help you live a long, active, healthy life. To truly understand just how vital amino acids are for health, think about your body and what it's made of. You've probably heard before that it's made up of mostly water. What you probably haven't heard is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lead muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now, they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. You know, I'm a a generous-minded and generous-hearted person, so I always think that people are generally doing their best, um, especially even when it comes to the doctors. You know, but I, I have seen patients just really blown off and dismissed and been told, you know, chronic Lyme doesn't exist and there's you know you 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 know you never knew about a tick bite so you couldn't have Lyme or there's no Lyme in California so you know flush that tick (laughs) down the toilet which is like total hogwash right so 54 out of 56 of the counties in California have the Lyme carrying tick and in 46 out of of those counties that tick has been shown to have the Lyme bacteria inside of it in California right so it's it's here and it's it's all over the U.S. and you know I think that Doctors need to be better informed, but they also like, it's just, it's so complicated, but they, there needs to be like curiosity and there needs to be tenacity. And there also needs to be more time. Like these doctors are pushed up against the wall. They don't have time. They got to move people through super quick. And, and there's not a lot of respect for, you know, the biochemical individuality that we think about in functional medicine. Um, and, and there's a lot of problems around algorithms, right? So we're sort of taught in, in Western medicine, it's very algorithmic. It's sort of, you know, it's a set of variables, X plus Y equals Z, right? You know, you look for signs and symptoms, which is X. You do some lab testing and corroborate the evidence there, which is Y. And based on X plus Y, you conclude that a patient has a disease, which you know is 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 Z. And then basically that dictates what your what your treatment is. It's it's, it's pretty cookie cutter. And you know the best minds will get curious and try to work through that. But for those who don't have the capacity, or they start getting defensive, or there's pride involved or hubris, like you say, yeah, I think they shut down. And um, you know, they, they, they sort of like kind of give up a little bit. And um, I, there's this incredible book um, called the, the Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness by Sarah Ramey, which has some really incredible quotes in there. Um, and, and I might even read one. Is that okay if I read one real quick? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So um, she goes uh, to the doctor office and, and she says, the following scene is unfolding in an office in your town every day, perhaps right now at this very moment. Jane Doe crosses her ankles in the waiting room, absently turning the pages of People magazine. She looks around often now at the oversized clock, now at the receptionist, now at the generic watercolors on the wall. Miss Doe, a flat voice calls out, Dr. Bowles will see you here as a GI doctor. Uh, Second door on the left. Jane takes a seat in the doctor's office regarding the diplomas on the wall. On the desk stands a life-size replica of the human intestine tract. When Dr. Bowles bustles in, he introduces himself as he looks over her chart for what is clearly the first time. Now, Miss Doe, he cheerfully says, what can I do for you? 
the interaction begins very seriously, a furious scribbling of notes, a furrowing of the brow, a lot of nodding. The usual diseases are ruled out and Jane confirms that she's been tested twice for everything under the sun. Her primary symptoms are severe constipation, distension and pain in the lower left quadrant of her abdomen. As the doctor pages through her thick medical file, Jane takes the opportunity to share some of the stranger non-bowel symptoms that she's experienced, aching in the bones, fatigue, itching, unexplained gynecological symptoms, memory problems, lower back pain. But the words are scarcely out of her mouth before she wishes that she had kept her addenda to herself. She can see the red flags rising behind his eyes and the note taking slowly tapers off. Before she knows it, where once Sherlock Holmes scribbled furiously, hot on the trail, bent on solving her mystery, he now leans back in his swivel chair, tip of his pen in the corner of his mouth, checking his watch. His look is saturated with understanding, for he has solved the case. What we have here is not a rare tropical disease, Watson. What we have here is an unhappy woman, badly in need of an antidepressant. Wow. Yeah, a lot, lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, women do tend to be more affected by these right. conditions for reasons that we don't understand. And that has been sort of weaponized in a sexist way for so many years. Women just being told it's all in their head, whether we're talking about IBS or autoimmune disease or chronic inflammatory response syndrome or any of these conditions that's that's often the routine exactly what you just described right yeah. and this to me it highlights another huge shortcoming of the conventional approach and where functional medicine has makes so much more sense is it's the dualistic cartesian model of looking at the body where every part is separate and not related to the whole and so if you go to the, to the doctor and you complain of a whole bunch of different symptoms, they're going to refer you to each body part doctor, you know, for to, to address those particular complaints. So if you have GI issues, you go see the gastroenterologist for that. If you have muscle aches and fatigue, you might see a rheumatologist for that. If you feel cold all the time, they might refer you to the endocrinologist and check your thyroid. And none of these people are communicating. No one's talking to each other. No one's talking to each other. No one's going to each other's conferences and learning from each other. No, there's no, I mean, in a perfect world, the primary care provider is supposed to be playing that quarterback role and making all the connections, but they're not trained really to look at the body in a system from a systems perspective as we do in functional medicine. And, and so, they get seven, seven to 12 minutes per visit. <laughs> impossible. Like there's no, even <laughs> if you have that perspective, right. there's, it's, it's just physically, you know, like by, from physics perspective, impossible to, to do that. And, and yet, you know, that's the majority of people now have these syndromes that. And stacking. Yeah, they're driven. They're complex chronic conditions that are driven usually not by just one factor, but a number of different factors. And if you were to like map it out on paper, like the conventional sort of the roots of conventional medicine assume it's a linear cause and effect relationship, right? There's there's A and then that leads to B and maybe that eventually leads to C. But you imagine it as a straight line going from left to right. What it really is, is just like a tangled ball of yarn. You yeah, know? totally. I say that all the time. We're like trying to tease apart the ball of yarn. Totally. Yeah. And so I think one of the biggest issues is that that's the reality we live with at this point. And arguably, it was always the reality. I mean, the body is a complex ecosystem. It was never really amenable to being characterized by a linear cause and effect relationship. But I think these, comp these, these newer complex chronic illnesses are even more indicative of that. So can you talk a little bit about that from, you know, from the perspective of how functional medicine differs and why it's a better model to address these current, you know, the, the, the challenges of our current moment? Yeah. And, and I think there's nuance within functional medicine too, right? Um, you sent out an email, I think it was yesterday talking about um, root cause versus pleiotropism, right? Which I thought was super on point and fascinating. And because even within functional medicine, so, so backing up functional medicine, you know, we always talk about looking for the root cause, looking for, you know, what's, what's the driver. Um, we tend to take a lot more time with our patients. We tend to be a lot more curious. We respect the biochemical individuality of each person's body. We look at the placement of that body within their exposome, everything that they're being exposed to from the time 
they are in their mom's womb or even before, right? What made, it, what made that sperm in that egg? All the way up through to the moment they die, right? And how do those things affect their health? And that all counts, right? And it's like you have this huge spider web and if you pull over here, it's gonna jiggle over here or, or the ball of yarn or the layers of the onion. We talk about these things, right? Um, you know, but we, we're always trying to do as deep of a dive as we can and to look at all those factors and hold space for all those factors to be involved, meaning, okay, you might have some bugs, you might have some dysbiosis, you might have some gastrointestinal inflammation or imbalance or breakdown of barriers across the body, whether it's gut or lung or skin or brain. But then you're also drinking water that you're, you're exposed to, you're, you're breathing the air, you're eating the food, all those core inputs are what then speaks to our cells and our epigenetics and turns genetic switches on and off to either drive or retreat slash heal from disease, right? And then community and psycho-spiritual and you know, all these different aspects that um, are, are critical for health, right? And so it's, it's um, incredibly complex. And, and you know, I would say also extremely um, you know, gratifying to work in this field and to have this huge toolkit, which is just invisible to a lot of, of mainstream primary care, you know, specialist doctors, all of a sudden patients can come in and, and start to cautiously tell us about what they're experiencing because they're, they're worried that they're not going to, you know, they're, they're going to be met with some resistance. And, and instead, we're, we're right there with them. And we're saying, yep, that makes sense. Okay, yep, I can see where that started to turn things sideways. And oh, but what about this? Like, it seems like you started having X, Y, and Z after that. And the, here's why that could happen. And, you know, the connections and, and this idea of this primary focus on lifestyle, which is what you speak about so eloquently all the time in, in your books. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a great resource for, for everybody. Um, but then also this, um, patient and provider as collaborators. So it's not top down, right? It's not, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, I'm going to tell you what to do. And if you don't do it, you know, you know, I'm going I'm to kick you out of my practice. It's the opposite of that, right? It's like, I'm constantly learning from our patients and, and understanding how things affect different people uh, on, on an individual basis and, and what their experience is. And, you know, we have 25 plus years doing this and, and it's about curiosity, as I mentioned, and it's about tenacity, right? You know, we don't give up. Right, we basically are going to be digging, looking at all body systems, doing, you know, first round of testing. If that doesn't show anything, we have you know second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth rounds of testing. Tests are still imperfect. I always tell my patients that it's it's much more about what is your experience and what's happening to you and what's your response to any treatment. Right, um, it's kind of like you're tapping on a beehive and then you're listening. Like, what did I do and what's the what's the outcome? And then from there we plot our path. Right. And so one thing that we're doing at, at CCFM, as well as at our new uh, 501c3, the, the Functional Medicine Research and Technology Center, is we're trying to build this new ecosystem, this new care ecosystem uh, that, that is better equipped to deal with the data and deal with the experience of people struggling with complex chronic illnesses and that can capture and, um, and bring visibility to that experience. And so part of that is just talk, right? It's just history and sort of what's happened to you and what's happening to you now. But a big part of that we're playing with is um, really being careful about capturing and mapping um, other data. So um, symptom tracking in a, in a structured way so that we can look at those trends and see patterns over time, generate insights, uh, do some cross tabulation between, okay, here's where this treatment started and here's what happened to your symptom load and then also wearable data. Uh, so looking at heart rate variability, looking at resting heart rate, looking at sleep metrics and, and being able to, again, correlate that to the patient's experience, what their symptoms are, um, and then also their trajectory, right? And, um, you know, the, I think there's a, a really amazing opportunity here um, to move healthcare in general, but specifically the work that we're doing with, with people with complex chronic illnesses to move that into the future of medicine and to really start to harness that, that digital exhaust that we're all giving off. Um, my, my mentor, Daniel Kraft, I love following him on Twitter. He talks about that. You know, we're just giving off this incredible load of data that we can and should, and we're working on it, uh, start to harness and start to visualize back 
for the provider use and for the patient use um, and for the benefit of, of wellness and wellness programs. We did this with our, our firefighter wellness programs and first responder uh, health optimization programs, right? Um, but visualizing that data, putting it onto a dashboard because that then brings visibility to the experience and the trajectory and helps us elucidate what's working, what's not working, um, but also enables a whole care team to be involved with the care, right? Which is so critical, right? We need the doctors, we need the nurse practitioners, we need the PAs, but we need the health coaches, we need the nutritionists, we need the admin support, we need the social workers, we need a social aspect to this care where people can invite their friends and family to be part of their journey and their data and see along with them what they're experiencing to, to generate. Um, I, I could go on for this for a while, but I'll, I'll let you jump in and if you have any thoughts or questions. Yeah, well, I mean, it, there, there's so many different, I'm sure anyone who's listening is, is tracking these differences. It's kind of night and day, really. So you have, first of all, a, a, a paradigm shift. That's perhaps, you know, the most important as a starting place is is the the different way that we look at things from a functional medicine perspective as a systems-based approach we look at the interconnectedness of the body we look at and the mind we look at all of those various parts that you're referred to a different doctor to see about in a conventional system is connected and we're able to make those connections you know if, if when we're working up a, a patient who comes in and complains you know i have all these diverse symptoms, we can often trace that back. Okay, it could be a gut health issue. That could actually lead to all of those different symptoms, or it could be an infection. And and over time, you know, that kind of perspective, I think, shortens the learning process dramatically. You know, like uh, you can get to the to at least a, a working hypothesis so much more quickly that way than with the the, the more kind of linear segmented and disconnected route well you you could very well never you could spend 30 years in that system and never really reach the destination and the answer as a lot of people can attest and then the you know i would say that same kind of web of interconnectedness extends to how the clinical care happens as you pointed out it's not just a linear relationship between doctor and patient that's it and everyone else is just kind of there in the background playing you know, perhaps a support role, but there are multiple different providers playing multiple different roles, all of which are very yep. important and sometimes can be even more important than yeah. the relationship with the doctor. And that's really what it takes at this point, I think, and I know you agree, we, you know, we set things up that way for a reason, that that's, that's what it takes to deal with these complex chronic conditions that we're facing now. You can't yeah. m map an outdated reductionist system on top of these extremely wet, you know, web-like interconnected complex pattern based illnesses and expect that to work. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I know. I remember being so uh, excited and fascinated as you were going through your journey a number of years ago when you were building the practitioner training program and, you're, and then later building the health coach training program. And just like, you know, we'd have these conversations and I would just learn from you about how you were learning about learning theory, right? How do people learn? How do we optimally convey information? What size, bite-sized chunk of, you know, time duration of a, of a recorded video or of a meeting or whatever it is, like, you know, we get to the point where our brains are full after too long and we have to, you know, we're not absorbing anything, right? So how do we break that up? How do we make it experiential? How do we, you know, really bring in, uh, uh, I mean, just like you know, watching you go through that and learning from you was, was really interesting and fascinating for me because it, it also just showed me, okay, when we're working with our patients, um, we're asking a lot of them, right? We're, we're giving them this new model. I've been totally guilty of overwhelming people. Like, you know, like I can only handle so much at a time. And like, I think a lot of what you just told me is really valuable, but like I missed most of it because I, I'm trying to just track that first one and number one and number two, um, both from like the to-dos on the lifestyle, you know, reboots, but then also on lab testing and like all the things we ask folks to do. So getting them the help, getting them the step-by-step -step approach where they can make incremental progress, where they can become empowered, where they can see that if I do my 30-day, you know, autoimmune nutritional reset, or if I do my 30 day of breathing exercises or my 30 days of meditation or my 30 days of movement or my 30 days of improving my sleep hygiene, that 
there's this outcome that happens and that that's on me, that I can control that, right? And that that helps to reset inflammation and all these different body processes where then everything else works better, right? All the treatments that we then try. So um, that engagement and that collaboration is really one of my really favorite things about what we do. And, you know, when we see patients in follow-up after a visit, it's, it's really not about, did you do X, Y, and Z that I told you or asked you to do? It's, a, it's, a, it's more about what happened when you did it, right? And, and so, and our, our patients are so engaged and just constantly learning from them um, as, as we make our, our way through this, these worlds. One of the things that uh, frustrated me, and I know you've been working a lot on um, at CCFM and also uh, through the 501c3, and just in gen that's a general interest of yours, is, well, starting with the frustration first, and I know it's changed even the last couple of years, is our ability to collect data uh, is, I think, ahead of our ability to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. and, and especially to present it to patients in a meaningful way, but even for as clinicians to be able to quickly visualize it and turn that data into actionable insight that we can, that we can use. And then to have it be something that the patients can own themselves and then take with them and in, into, you know, future medical interactions or health contacts. And I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting opportunities here with blockchain and how that's being applied to this and then new data visualization tools and things like that. So what's your sense of that? Because that is, you know, potentially in the future, one way of addressing this overwhelm of like too much information, can't make sense of it. But if, if it existed in a form that was easier to take in and that people had ownership and control over, I think it would be easier. Yeah, and, and that is a thorny problem. Um, and, and it's the problem of our time, because again, we have the ability, like you said, to gather all this data and, 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 and the doctors don't have time to dig into it and to mine it for insights. And so we're working hard on that and trying to find ways to serve the patient. So it's gotta be simple and it's got to be actionable and it's got to be, um, you know, like on point, it's, you know, it's the right piece of data at the right time, at the right level of simplicity or complexity that helps them, you know, achieve better outcomes. On the flip side, on our end, it has to be deep and complex and um, nuanced and manipulatable, and we have to be able to play with it and, and you know, compare and contrast different, different things and interventions. Um, so it's an evolution right now, you know, and um, my favorite thing right now is you know, let's just get that data flowing in and let's be playing with it and let's be asking questions of it. And we're actually working right now on like version three or four, I think, of, of a data visualization dashboard. Um, our our uh, Dr. Omar Shaker has been working with me and for a number of years now and, and building dashboards. And, and so we're basically coming up with like a simple sort of overall score that is a compilation of, of a variety of factors, right? It's a It's a combo score of their overall symptoms, and then of several metrics on a wearable device that we think are most important. And those include heart rate variability as a marker for nervous system set point, uh, resting heart rate um, as a marker for resilience and you know, overall capacity on the, on the organism, movement slash steps, even though those are a little messy, um, and, and then sleep, like one global marker for sleep, right? Not like deep sleep, REM sleep, light sleep, but just sort of how much sleep. I don't trust all the algorithms on some of these devices, but the raw data is really helpful. And what I'd like to see is like, okay, put these devices on people. And if they want to look at their app every day or once a day or twice a day or 10 times a day or zero times a month, I don't, that's fine. Like either look at it or don't look at it. I don't care, but just keep it on. And, and then what we get is a super interesting data stream that we can look at and, and make predictive responses to, but also kind of make sense of in retrospect. And, um, I'm, I'm just going to do a little screen share. Um, I want you to look at a couple of things with me as, as I talk through this, but a couple of really interesting cases. So uh, here's this 25-year-old young man, um, complex chronic illness, chronic fatigue, Lyme, tick-borne infections. You know, he's super fatigued and, and low motivation. We said, okay, well, we're kind of feeling a little crunched on options. Let's try some escitalopram, Lexapro, as an antidepressant. Um, started him on it here. And what do we see um, his, is his um, heart rate variability. We see this just tanking of his HRV, right? And then we start to see this compensatory rise or increase, uh, which would be a worsening of his resting heart rate and this big dropout in his deep sleep. And so we said, whoop, that's 
and he wasn't feeling very good. He was feeling more tired, more out of it. And so that doesn't look right. Let's stop. And sure enough, we stop it and he reverts back to his baseline. So then it turns out that his brother, who also has a complex chronic illness, had been on Lexapro for years prior to his using an aura ring. This data for his brother um, is going back three years. And so based on, on brother one, we said, okay, let's actually stop the Lexapro for brother two. And sure enough, right when we stopped it, um, HRV climbs way up to the absolute highest point of HRV that he's had in three years since he's been tracking. Yeah, right? for people, because the listeners can't see this, it's not a small difference. It uh, looks a little bit like a hockey stick uh, at the end of the graph there. Yep. And and now check, uh, this is all anonymized right now that we're looking at, but you know, I'll double check with, with these patients in particular and see if maybe we can post some screenshots because I think it's just fascinating, fascinating stuff. Absolutely. And then also deep sleep for, for brother number two stopping it came way up, right? So a lot of physiological metrics. Now there's data in the literature showing that SSRIs fractionate sleep. And, you know, so, so, but again, like just seeing this physiological response there um, was great. Here's a, a zoom in of that. This was a super interesting case. 35 um, year old female, severe IBD, Crohn's. Uh, and she went on a diet reset, basically just started eating meat and veggies and felt horrible, like got a lot worse, right? Way worse constipation, total market, the worst global worsening of all of her symptoms. And after just a week, uh, it's actually just about 10 days we're looking at this data for, um, she said, okay, I can't stay on this diet. I feel so bad, I'm going back down to my previous diet. But what we saw, even though she felt horrible, is this paradoxical improvement in her HRV and an improvement in her resting heart rate telling us that even though she was feeling terribly and there was more inflammation and, and cytokines and that her body was telling us from an internal point of view that that's a good thing, that I want that, right? That that's gonna help me be more reset as an organism. And so we looked at this and we said, wow, okay. So let's just put as many like symptomatic management pieces in place. Let's make sure you're not constipated. Let's work on mast cell. Let's work on your gut. Let's try to really calm down so that we can then try to go back on this type of a nutritional intervention and see if, if that will help us hold your gains. So, you know, so there's just a couple of, of insights that, that help us. Um, we were able to show when we worked with firefighters and first responders that just the first two pieces of our six month program, if you do a 30 day whole 30 paleo template reset and you get people moving, tripled their HRV as a cohort, right? And firefighters have, you know, the number one and two ways they die are suicide and cancer, right? So brain inflammation, full body inflammation, immune dysregulation, you know, trauma. And so lowering that load is pretty, pretty important. Uh, so again, that's kind of what we're nibbling at. And um, as we match that to symptoms, I think it becomes very interesting. There's during COVID, a couple of my favorite, you know, research groups and studies that were coming out. Um, Dr. Ben Smarr uh, down at UC San Diego, he did the Aura Ring Temp Predict studies in collaboration with UCSF, that group. And then also Jennifer Radin down at Scripps different work, different, different papers, but both showing that if you marry wearable data, the physiological wearable data with patient reported symptom tracking data, that then things really start to kick into gear and become really powerful and even potentially predictive. I love those examples because it's an ex they're opposite in some ways. In the, in the one case, it, the data confirmed the subjective experience of two people, the, the, the two brothers, and in the other case, it contradicted it. And that is a challenge with treating various complex chronic conditions is, uh, as we both experience is sometimes when you make a positive change, you can get work, you can feel worse before right. you feel better. And it's always been a very difficult situation because as a clinician or as a patient, it's hard to know whether the feeling worse is just the, is part of the road to feeling better or it's just feeling worse, you know, and, right. and it's exactly, going to continue right. to feel, and, and we didn't really have any objective tools to help answer that question. Right. I mean, and, they're invisible, right? You can't, these people are have invisible illness and their trajectory is invisible. So yeah, just getting, getting a little bit more like pulling back the curtain a little bit and starting to see what's happening inside the body, um, is, is incredibly valuable. Yeah. yeah. So we're not quite there where we have the Star Trek tricorder where we can just sort of like, you know, <laughs> move it around next to the body right. and know exactly Scan. what's going on. But it's a step in the in that direction, you know, like where we're we're able, I mean, like 
metagenomics and our ability, you know, with sh shotgun sequencing to see precisely what's in the microbiome has led to some, you know, pretty important discoveries about the the b bacteria that are most important, like Acromantia, which wasn't even on the radar, you know, right. 20 years ago. <laughs> right. Because it's an anaerobe and it doesn't really survive oxygen and it's much harder to work with in the lab and but you know we're able to see these things now that we weren't able to see even even 20 years ago as at least outside of a rare kind of research setting and the, and the same is true for all of these different things that you're sharing so it's it's definitely encouraging huge step in the right direction i love that you're through your foundation spending a lot of time figuring out how to not just how to collect these data which is an important first step but how to make sense of them yeah. and how to make them useful for practitioners and patients so and how exciting to transform times. how to transform chronic illness care that's our, our Absolutely. mission <laughs> yeah. so yeah tell people you know if, if they're interested in hearing this and, and they want to come to the clinic and and work with your team how to find out more yeah yeah i mean we we welcome any and all levels of participation. You know, if, if you're an individual or you have a family member who's struggling with complex chronic illness, um, this is where we spend our lives and, and we'd be honored to try to help you on your journey to recovery. Uh, and, you know, even if you've seen naturopathic doctors, you've seen functional medicine providers um, with maybe some, some inkling of, of benefit um, or even some benefit, but you're not all the way where you need to be, um, you know, the level of um, experience and complexity that we bring, I think, is um, is really valuable to a lot of people, and um, and it's what we love doing. And so, you know, for patients, uh, you can find us at the California Center for Functional Medicine, uh, which is www.ccfmed.com. And also, if you, on the flip side, you know, understand this world of chronic illness, and you have resources, whether expertise or time or energy, or you're able to provide any level of financial support to help us transform healthcare uh, through research, education, and innovation, uh, please go to www.fxmedresearch.org. You can read more about what we're doing. You could donate there. You could drop us a line if there's anything you think you might be able to, to help us with. You know, there's so many amazing, smart, dedicated, hardworking people out there um, that we're really would be honored to collaborate with, with all of you. So please reach out. So one one question that we used to get all the time, especially because the clinic's called California Center for Functional Medicine is, you know, do I have to live in California? Do I have to, you know, uh, come to the clinic in person for all the visits? Yeah, we're um, a fully virtual clinic at this point with, uh, with satellite physical offices. Um, uh, we have a practitioner, nurse practitioner, Megan Anderson in Colorado. Um, many of us have licenses in many states, and we continue to accumulate licenses as needed to serve patients um, as our population grows. And so, yeah, we, we can pretty much help folks anywhere um, I, uh, inter uh, within the U.S. Um, it's a little bit harder internationally with logistics, but, um, and, you know, I do anticipate going back to a hybrid of in-person uh, and virtual um, as, as we move through uh, and, and hopefully continue to stabilize the, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, great. Wanted to highlight that because yeah, know, so you. many people have trouble finding someone in their local area and don't understand that actually this works pretty well virtually. We've got it. We've been doing it for years. I mean, I started out back in 2010, even offering some portion of visits virtually. And so we, we've collectively, yeah. you know, Sanja has been doing that for a long time. All the practitioners have been working in that model. You can order it's easy for clinicians to order tests and send people to labs where they live or a lot of the Absolutely. test kits are drop shipped, you know, directly to the, the patient, which makes no difference at all where you live in that, in that, uh, scenario. So it, it's really easy to do this way and it's been done this way for a long time. So, um, yeah, it's been, good this to is know. A, <laughs> how we built the practice and when we started right. in 2014 when we launched it together, um, you know, it was built with this, with this virtual, um, backbone. So absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Sanjay. It's been a pleasure to connect with you. And I know this will be helpful to so many listeners and thanks everybody for listening. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. And head over to, to ccfmed.com if you're interested in, in getting some help. I can't recommend Sanja and his team more highly. It's, you know, incredible 
uh, clinic and you'll be in great hands. So highly, highly recommend it. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure to be here today. Pleasure is mine. All right, everybody. See you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.